This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 226 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. In this episode, we have Van Sturgeon. Van is a real estate investor and general contractor. And in this episode, Van will be teaching us how we can be our own general contractor on our rehab projects. The rehab process is arguably the most important part of doing a flip. Doing it correctly means that you will finish your project on time and on budget. While on the other hand, relying on an untrustworthy general contractor will often mean that your project will run over budget, the work will have poor quality, and you'll never know where you are in your timeline. In the worst case scenario, your contractor might run away with your money in the middle of a job. So if you want to learn how to become your own general contractor to efficiently manage your flips, then you need to listen to this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a quick favor and leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. The more reviews that we get, the more the show will grow, which will help us do more cool stuff. The real estate market is still incredibly hot. So if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for your rental properties with rates as low as 4%, you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener and I'll give you a discount on our processing fee. And now on to the show. All right, Van, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and that's who you are and tell us what you do. Well, I really do appreciate you having me on your podcast. I was looking forward to it. My name is Van Sturgeon and I'm a real estate investor and I own several businesses in the real estate industry from land acquisition to uh, subdivisions. I have a custom home builder as well as you do restoration work on commercial buildings and renovations. I'm a general contractor. There was a hat that I would put on when I got started in this industry over 30 years ago, got started as a general contractor. So that's really where my heart is or where, where I got my start. Can you give us some background of like how you got started with investing, how you got into the general contracting field? Sure. Well, I'm a product of immigrant parents, and I was born and raised in Chicago in the late 60s, uh, 70s. And my parents were living in an apartment, a one-bedroom apartment, where my parents were working their tails off, trying to get as much money put together to put down to purchase a house. So they were working really hard, uh, you know, pinching pennies to get that uh, all put together. And I don't know how, but my parents were able to find out that the apartment they're renting, the building, was actually went up for sale. And they were able to put not only their money, but also family helped them out and putting, being able to put down enough of a down payment to actually buy this apartment building. So the dream of owning a house actually transitioned to becoming a landlord. And that happened in the late 70s. So my parents bought the building, took over. And it was around that time in the late 70s when things started to change in terms of the economy, the political environment. Chicago's there was a mass sort of migration of people out of the city into the suburbs. And you had the oil embargo where I remember as a kid waiting in line to pour gas and interest rates were crazy at 18, 20 something percent. Inflation rate was bonkers. And it was just really like a malaise in the country. It was palpable as growing up there in that time, you can feel it. And during that period of time, it started to a lot of landlords were suffering, like just like how my parents were. And they just couldn't hold on to their, to their buildings because you had this huge vacancy rate. You had prostitution and drugs sort of move into the uh, area. And landlords just threw their hands up in the air, couldn't take it anymore. And literally, they would torch their buildings to collect insurance money. So walking through these neighborhoods that used to be beautiful and well-to-do and all that kind of stuff, all of a sudden, they would be potmarked with buildings that were torched. And it's just so that landlords would collect their money. So in this, during this period of time, my parents had to do everything they could to survive. And so as a family, we had to buckle down and we had to do all the work ourselves in the building to save every penny that we could. So whether it's painting, roofing, replacing windows, cleaning toilets, whatever it took, we didn't hire anybody. We did it as a family. So growing up in that environment, I knew everything that it was to know about replacing a light switch or whatever required, whatever was needed to get done. In the, on the renovation side, I would, I would get it done. So we would get it done, not I, but we would get it done. So ultimately, that's what ended up happening. And because remember that during that period of time, we had vacancies of like 40 to 60% in the building. It was a really miserable time. That early eight was really tough. Fast track, we got through that period of time and went off to university, finished up school, 
And my parents, as all parents, have this dream and hope that their son would, you know, put on a suit and tie and a briefcase and become a lawyer or a doctor or accountant or something like that. And I was actually did apply to a couple of law schools. I did get accepted. And I was tempted about going doing that, but my heart wasn't in it. And I had that very difficult conversation with my family, sat down with my parents. I remember it like it was yesterday, where I broke the bad news to them that their son didn't want to embark on a legal career, but wanted to get into real estate, wanted to be a, a general contractor. And begrudgingly, they accepted. And that's how things got started. And that was in the late 80s, early 90s when I got started. I was a general contractor. So a lot of stuff on the residential side, single family homes. We go out there and knock on doors. I would quote like crazy as much as I can. And I was lucky during that period of time because the real estate market was good. It was vibrant in, in Chicago. So I started to grow my business and I would do the one renovation here, another renovation there, rehab, whatever, you know, people call it reno, some call it rehab. Then what ended up happening was I started running in, Sean, I started running the same guys in that circle, you know, the same real estate investors who would do the flips, who would buy property and hold on to it, would have a portfolio, would add to it. And I got intrigued by this whole idea and I started to branch off on that as well. So I started doing that. So I remember distinctly the first home that I purchased. I bought, I think, for 42000 this really beat up bungalow. And I spent $17,000, $18,000 on it over the course of a couple of months. And I was able to sell it. It ended up costing me around 60000 including the rehab. And I ended up selling it for ninety-seven, ninety-eight thousand dollars $98,000, something like that. I made like over thirty grand for a course during the course of like a four to five month period, something like that. And I was like, wow, like the average salary back then in 1991, I think was around twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. And so I made $30,000 in four or five months. So I was like, hey man, this is some good stuff. And so I was growing my general contracting business. I was doing really well. I was adding employees. I was doing more and more in business, doing residential and commercial. And at the same time, my side hustle, my side gig was flipping properties. And I eventually got into buy and hold. So that's how I started off. And then I branched off into other parts of other areas. I wanted to diversify my eggs and I saw opportunities in other places. So I have a portfolio right now over over a thousand properties in Michigan, Ohio. I also have a nice portfolio in New Brunswick, Canada, and also in Florida. So that's where I'm at. That's awesome. It sounds like you have a very established career going all the way back from like the late 70s to the, the 90s and even today. So I guess now you focus mostly on like teaching other people about home renovations and the mistakes that they might encounter and how to avoid those mistakes. So what would you say is like a common mistake that people aren't aware of when they're getting to their first rehab project? Well, first of all, what I find that new real estate investors, there's a huge fear that they over, need to overcome in order to be able to grab a property and go through that whole process. Because as you know, Sean, when you go through the process of purchasing a property, there's thousands of dollars at stake. But when you grab that property and you're going through the rehab process, it's pretty ironic, actually. You got to beat up the property. You got to knock out some walls, rip out the kitchen. You're actually decreasing the value of the property, spending more money to then to increase it past the point where you purchased it. So that whole process itself is pretty extensive. A lot of people can't overcome. So there's a lot of things that I would recommend people do, but being able to overcome that and being able to be successful at it. And so if the question is, what's the biggest problem that I find the real estate investors get a bark when they bark on a rehab, what they do is I think that the biggest problem is that there isn't a clear document or a scope of work that's created specific to that actual project, that rehab project. In my commercial, when I do commercial work, there isn't a job that I tender, meaning I'm the acting as a general contractor. I receive a request to quote on a job. I don't quote anything unless there's an actual scope of work, a document that's given to me. And in that scope of work, it literally gives you a blow by blow. There's pictures, there's plans, there's specifications of every single aspect of the work. And I, as a general contractor, I, as a tradesperson, whether it's electrician, plumber, whatever. You have all the information you're quoting that particular document. And so when those quotes are received by the principal, they're all apples. There's no oranges, there's no bananas. You're getting apples to apples comparison because the document is there, it's fulfilled every single aspect, or at least it should, every single aspect of the work that's being required to be done in that property. On the residential side, 
unless you hire an architect or interior designer, especially interior designer, there's no such thing. It's sort of what the typical newbie will do is they'll hire a general contractor. The general contractor will say, okay, what do you want to get done? Oh, well, I want this and I want that. I want that. Okay, no problem. He go, runs off. Then there's another general contractor comes. Oh, what do you want to get done? Well, I'm thinking maybe this and this and this. Or sometimes they just defer to the general contractor, which is even worse. Then you get all these quotes come back, five, seven, 12 quotes, whatever. How can you compare apples with apples? How do I know that the, high, the, the quote that is second highest is not the best quote out of the whole bunch? Our natural inclination, of course, is to go after the, the less expensive one, the cheapest. But in reality, if you look at the quotes, there could be a lot of stuff that have been left out. And they are. There is. There is a lot of, if you know what you're doing as a general contractor, tradesperson, typically all the quotes will come in very close to one another. Because everybody, you know, is quoting all the time. You know, the good guys, the ones that are doing moving product and providing quality service, they know what's going on. They know what their margins are. They know what they can charge. But when you get quotes that are all over the place, that means there's something wrong in the process. So I have a whole series of things that you need to uh, process. Like I've, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And I know all the secrets and the techniques and the systems that you need to put in place to be able to assure yourself that you can save money. And one of the things that I preach, Sean, is that instead of running out and be hiring a general contractor, I strongly encourage you, the new real estate investor, to be the one who acts as your own general contractor. You are allowed to, in an overwhelming majority of municipalities out there across North America, to be able to act as your own general contractor on your own property. And so I think that a lot of folks should take advantage, especially if you're a new real estate investor, you should take advantage of that because you can save anywhere between 30 to 50% on the total rehab because that's what the margins are. If I were to charge you, Sean, $50,000 to do a rehab on your rental property or your fix and flip or whatever, if I'm charging 50, my net cost on it is probably around that $35,000 range for that two, three month job. So I'm making $15,000. Why can't you push me off to the side and act as your own general contractor, plan and manage a whole rehab and save that money. And we're just talking about 50,000. Never mind if we get up to 100,000. And obviously the savings are you know, quite a bit more in terms of dollars. So hopefully I answered your question. Yeah. I mean, in the Bay Area, especially rehab costs go from like 100K to 150K for a single family home, you know, 1500 square feet, nothing too special. I guess one big problem though, is if you're brand new, you don't know what you're doing. So how do you go about being your own GC if you don't even know where to start? Well, unfortunately, and fortunately, there's a lot of information out there. In the internet, also in books and things of that sort. But one of the things, if you really are serious about becoming a real estate investor, a successful real estate investor, I don't see how you can't be learn the process of how to plan and manage your own rehab because it's a fundamental skill set you need in order to be successful. Like, especially now with the, how the real estate market is crazy, crazy. You need to be able to walk into a property that's up for sale, whether you got it from a wholesaler, whether you got it from a bird dog, whether you got it from an accountant, a probate lawyer, some kind of, you know, or an MLS. You really got to be able to walk into that property, immediately walk around and get a bing, 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 and figure out what it is that's required for the property, put a dollar value and put a time frame of how long it's going to take for you and then ultimately make a decision on whether this is a fix and flip or this is a buy and hold property, right? So if you don't have that skill set and you got to call your house inspector, property inspector, whatever, one of those guys that come out and charge you three to $500 and spends a day or two, tells you, gives you a report, that deal's gone. That deal's gone. So if, again, if you want to become a successful real estate investor, and this is the greatest wealth creation that exists. It's not the stock market. It's not anything else. In real estate, 90%, you know the facts and the figures, Sean, 90% of the world's millionaire billionaires out there are from real estate. I am a multi-multi-millionaire because of real estate. It isn't because I'm a pretty guy. It's because I put the time and effort to learn my craft and I've been very successful at it. And people out there can also do the same, but you need to be able to learn how the skill set. You need to learn how it's so how do you go about it? Well, aside from the information, there's folks like me that I help people. I engage them and I walk them through the process of how to plan, properly plan a rehab and how you execute it, how you manage it so that you're walking around. You're not doing any of the work. I've got scars all over my body from lots of rehab rentals you know, that have hurt me. 
I don't want anyone to do the, the demolition or do any work in the property. What I want them to do is act as a general contractor and go out and plan and manage the rehab. And it can be done. It has been done. I've worked with many, many people. I've walked them through the process. They've done phenomenally well, where they save a lot of money, but also at the same time, again, they learn the skill set and remove the fear. I see often so many times when I've engaged people that they feel so empowered after the process because there's just, you know, this whole rehab is so, it's such a boogeyman. People are so afraid of it because, you know, we've all heard the horror stories. There's TV programs out there to concentrate on the, how you know, these contractors will grab money and disappear and do horrible workmanship. So that's where I've found that there's a great need for it. And I love it because this is what I've done. Like I'm semi-retired right now in my life and got great people in my businesses are doing what they're, you know, they're looking after things. I've got a nice portfolio and I'm adding to it and I've got a team that does that. And I've had a pretty rough life in building my businesses and I've sacrificed a lot. And so at my age, I decided to sort of downshift and sort of go into that semi-retirement stage. That's where I'm at in my life. And unfortunately, I'm not a golfer and I'm not a person who grabs a block of wood and whittles it into a coffee table. So I started getting bored. I was trying to figure out what my why was. And then ultimately what ended up happening was I get a phone call from a friend of ours, from my wife and I's. And he's like, hey, can you help me out with this reno that I'm thinking about doing? And I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I sat down with the whole family. We went through a whole series of things that I have, which has become second nature to me. And, you know, by the way, this person I've helped out, this person, like I've helped out people all across my life over the 30 years. People just call me up and sure, I enjoy helping people out. So anyways, I went through this whole process and at the end of it, they saved a lot of money. They felt empowered. They enjoyed the process and they were very thankful. And that in itself fed my soul. It touched me. You know, if these people, I'm able to help these people, can I help other people out there? Am I able to? And with the miracles of this Zoom thingamajig and, you know, with the phone, I can literally be walking with you in a property and telling you, hey, you should be doing this. You should do that. You should look after that. And it's been a great, phenomenal process where I'm literally sitting in my chair and I'm engaging people. I'm helping people. I'm helping them become successful real estate investors. And it's been a great experience. So I enjoy, I truly enjoy it. And part of that also has been been able to meet folks like you who are very, who's very successful. And I've done other podcasts. I've had articles published and, you know, specific to rehabbing renos. And so it's been great. And I enjoy it. And I look forward to waking up every morning and engaging like this with, with folks like yourself and with, with these new real estate investors. Yeah, it's great. So one thing that I know that a lot of people have issues with is they don't have enough practice time. So, you know, like when you're in school, you're given math equations. The first time you see it, you're like, I have no idea what to do. But then your teacher makes you do it over and over and over again until it becomes memory. So like in your case, you've done so many projects over your career as a general contractor that to you, this is easy. Like, no problem. A lot of the new investors have that fear because they've probably never done rehab themselves. And, you know, when they're getting their first deal, right, it's like the first one. How do you go about getting that practice of being able to see and know, okay, this is what this costs without getting those deals in the first place? Because as you know, right now in the Bay Area, especially, Deals are very hard to come by. Well, Sean, I agree with you that it's become very difficult for folks to find deals. But also at the same time, I also encourage people to get away from concentrating on deals on the MLS and look outside of that and see if there are opportunities. There there are deals everywhere, every single day. And so I strongly encourage to get out of that and try to figure out other ways of acquiring deals. So I agree with you in one respect, but I also disagree that there are opportunities out there. You just got to get it out there and you got to hustle. So this is, if you want to, again, be successful, you got to put in the time, you got to put in the effort and you'll find that it might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week, but it might be a month or two months from now. Well, a lot in terms of like just being able to get that practice of evaluating what it takes to renovate a property. Like, is there a way you can do that without actually having deals in the first place? Sure. Like once you've been able to, whole process of being a successful real estate investor is that you need to know your area thoroughly. And so what does that mean? You need to go out there and need to look at properties that are up for sale. You need to look at rental properties, depending on what direction you want to go. If you're into the buy and hold, you got to go visit rental properties to get an understanding of how much the rental is and what are the things that I need to do for that future property that I'm going to purchase. What do I need to do so that you're armed with that information? 
So you'd be surprised at how much information you can glean from visiting a number of properties within a specific area that you want to invest in and learn, get that information. And so once you've been able to, then you could then go to the next step and figure out, okay, so if I need to put in a new kitchen, a new bathroom, this, that, and the other, then maybe you can start that whole process of figuring out what is the cost? Where are the angles? What do I need to do? Also, Sean, there's a lot of resources out there that can help new real estate investors. There are these types of things, podcasts. There are real estate investment like groups, REI groups that people should join. I encourage them to join. And then lastly, there are meetup groups as well. And through the miracles of this technology mumbo jumbo, you can meet still people and you can like-minded people that I found that a lot of people are helpful. They're willing to exchange and provide information. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. Obviously, practical experience is the most important. But if you don't have that property, what's the next best thing? Well, these are the types of things I would suggest people do that they need to get out there and be pressed to flesh, meet people, look at properties, whatever direction you want to go to get a full understanding of what's you know, the marketplace so that you're prepared when you do find that property. And you will find a property. You will find a property. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was just saying that because like you said, the very first thing you do is if you're brand new, sometimes they get inspectors and then it takes too long. Or if you have to have a friend come through to look for you, again, it takes too long. It's best if you can do it yourself, but it's hard. It's like a chicken egg problem. How do you get that experience without getting the first deal? But I guess, yeah, like you said, look at properties that are on the market or just what's out there and get that experience from that. Sean, look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It is, of course, it's different when you watch a video on somebody you know, hammering a nail in a wall versus you grabbing that hammer with a nail and doing it yourself. And nothing beats a practical experience. So again, I'm pretty sure you will agree that one of the, if not the biggest fear that a real estate investor has when they walk into this industry and you want to be successful is that whole rehab process because of the horror stories and the thousands of dollars that it takes to go through that process, like to go through successfully. And you're hoping it's successfully. And again, there's a lot of issues associated with once you get involved in it and how much money it costs and overruns and budgets and time and all that kind of stuff. So what's the next best thing is what I've described. And ultimately, when you do find a property, if you still are fearful, then you need to, it's something like this. If you want to learn how to play a musical instrument like a piano, I mean, I could buy that piano just like how you can. And we can sit there banging away, trying to figure it out. And in a couple of years by ourselves, we'll be able to figure it out. Versus me going to hire a music teacher, a piano teacher, and is sitting right next to me. And then they're teaching me how to, you know, do the keys and the notes and all whatever, all that kind of stuff. And if you make a mistake, they, you know, they smack you upside the head and they make you do it over again. But ultimately, that's a lot quicker process for you to learn to be a successful person who knows how to play the piano. And so those are the types of things that in my life, when I was moving toward, you know, I was burning the candle at both ends. I was young. I was running around. I was, who, I was doing, like I had my business on the general contracting side. And I also was doing the flip, you know, slipping. I got to a point where I was doing too much and there's only 24 hours in a day. And I had a mindset coming from my background with my family, with my parents, that I had to do everything. And I was the only one that could, could do it, where I was sleeping at job sites. And I remember one particular home where I was sleeping at that home. And I woke up in the middle of the night, staring at this freshly painted ceiling. And I had these issues racing through my head about why that electrician didn't show up on time. And the kitchen manufacturer was late three weeks and all that kind of stuff. And I couldn't go back to sleep. And I woke up and finally, whatever I did, I woke up and I was like, I was going to have a nervous breakdown. I was just got married and I didn't go on my honeymoon because I was so, so engrossed in my work. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of sacrifices I've done to get to where I am today. And I got to a point where I, I couldn't take it anymore. And this is not, I didn't want to lead this life. And thankfully, as I threw in my community, I had run into a real estate investor who was you know, older than me, but he had a beautiful portfolio. He had a vacation home. He was, he was fit. He was tanned. He, had, he had, didn't have a care in the world. And this guy was, was an epitome of success. And I went to him and I said, sir, I told him my situation. And I asked him, can you help me? Can you help me? And he said, yeah, he agreed to. He was a coach. He coached me. I, pay, I had to pay a lot of money. Back then, it was a lot of money that I paid him. 
but it was the best money that I could have possibly spent. It was the best investment. And it was a reason why it took me from where I was to where I am today, because he was the person who walked in and had the fly on the wall who saw what I was doing and said, hey, this is what you need to do. This is the mistake you're making. This is what you should be doing. And he structured my business. He told me the mistakes I was making. I was too much of a micromanager. I had to have everything 100% perfect. This is the mindset that I had. He changed my mindset, changed my outlook. And that's how I was able to transition from being in the business to working on my business. And that's where my success is all of a sudden sprang forward. Since then, I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on mentorship, coaching, books, seminars, Everything that I can, whether it's learning how to Airbnb to whatever you can think of, because I love information. I love engaging. I love that kind of stuff. And so I've spent it on myself to improve myself. So if you're a new real estate investor, I think that's one of the things you should be looking at. If you're going to make an investment, the first thing you should be making an investment in is actually yourself before the property you're buying. Because that is probably the biggest, single most best return ROI that you're going to get is that make an investment in yourself before you start making an investment in a bricks and mortar kind of thing. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I've gone on a bunch of tangents. Sorry. It's all good. I mean, because if you invest in yourself, the cool thing is you keep the information forever. Whereas an investment can come and go and you can make money on it and you can lose money on it. But any information that you give to yourself, that's yours for life. Right. Yeah. So let's say you're going into a property for the very first time. What would you say are some of like the first key things that you need to be aware of? When I look at a property... I always look at curb appeal. That is the biggest thing that I look at and seeing what it is that I can do to be able to dramatically increase that so that I can either rent the property or you know flip it. And that's actually the least amount of money usually that you can spend on a property that'll give you the highest ROI. There's an old real estate agent that I knew back in Chicago who taught me that, who said to me, Van, You can't sell the steak without the sizzle. You need curb appeal. That is the number one thing that I look for in trying to create in a property when I see it. So I have the ability, because I've done this so often, when I look at a property on the outside, okay, if I do this, I do that, bing, 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 all of a sudden, you know, for a couple thousand dollars, I can transform the exterior look of the property. And that in itself amounts to thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, that in itself. Is there any quick tips of simple things that people can do to make their curb appeal better? Well, usually it's landscaping that does the trick. It's relatively inexpensive to replace the grass and put in new sod, to put in some bushes, to plant some flowers, roof, maybe perhaps the door, especially the door in the garage, or if there's a garage on the property, painting them, you know, stark contrast, depending on the area. Like It depends on the area. It depends on the property. But those are usually the types of things that you can do that will immediately give you the highest return for the least amount of money. Like, what does it cost to paint a garage door and a front door? Unless there's a window broken. See, this is one of the things that I find a lot of new real estate investors walk into a property and they immediately assume they've got to replace the windows or, you know, things like that that cost a lot of money. I always say that unless the, there's a broken window or you got a hole in the roof, you know, these are needs that need to be repaired. But I don't necessarily walk into a house and immediately you know, see if the windows are original or if they're, you know, 30, 40 years old that I immediately go out there and replace them. I'm not living in the house. I'm looking to flip it or I'm looking to rent it out. In either one of those scenarios, I always like to leave money on the table. I don't like to be, when I position a property, when I do what I have to do to it, I don't like being, if the market rate in your area or in that area is, you know, half a million dollars, I don't want to list my property at half a million dollars. Maybe in today's market is different, but in an average normal market, I want to list that property at 470, 480. I want to leave some money on the table. I want my property to move because I know as a real estate investor, I need to take my money, move it to go to the next property if I'm flipping it. When you're renting it, that's a different story. Also, I like to leave a little bit of money on the table because it's very costly, very costly every month that it goes by that you don't have somebody in that house or apartment it costs a lot of money. It takes you a long, long time to be able to recoup the money once you found a tenant to recoup the money that you lost after that first or second month. I've learned that the hard way. You know, you do the arithmetic and at the end of the day, you always, numbers don't lie. And you figure out, hey man, that didn't do so well. Yeah, you might've got top, you know, top rent, but it took you two months, three months to find that tenant. And that's so good. 
So yeah, those are the things I look for. And when you go into a property, like a fixer, especially, is there anything that makes it a deal breaker? Like, oh, this thing's not here. Count it. Like, let's move on. I've got the luxury because I built homes. I have subdivided. I've done subdivisions. So I'm not scared of anything. Actually, to answer your question in a reverse manner, I love properties that are total, complete disasters, especially I love properties that have foundations that are sinking. I love properties that have foundations that have cracks in them, water's pouring in. I love mold. I love the junk because that's where the most amount of people get scared away because of the work that's associated with it. Like in one particular area in New Brunswick, where I have a portfolio of properties, that area is known for issues with foundations because of the type of soil that this area is located in. So as a result... You find a lot of properties that people walk past. They don't want to even walk into because of the issues associated with foundation. The foundation sank. And so now you got to spend money on slab jacking, lifting up foundations, excavating, you know, new weeping tile, all that kind of stuff. And I love that stuff. Okay, that's okay. Stay away. I'll buy it. I'll do what I got to do because I know what I got to do. Bang, bang, bang. A couple of months, we're ready to rock and roll, whether I flip it or hold on to it. Right now, what I'm doing is anywhere between 100 to 300 transactions. So either I'm selling, or I'm buying, I'm holding. Most of the stuff that I'm doing right now is just holding on to. And thankfully, real estate has gone bonkers. And so I'm holding on to. I'm sorry, I don't know if I answered your question, but I answered it in that way. Like I love property. Yeah. So basically, there's no deal breaker for you because you know how to fix all the main issues of the homes. No, like I've made mistakes along the way that I can assure you, we can spend hours talking about things that I've made mistakes on and that I've learned. Like one example, one thing that keeps popping up in my head was a property that uh, moved on it very quickly. Great deal. There was an existing tenant in it, bought the property without doing my real due diligence because I have a system, I have a checklist that I follow and it was just too good of a deal. Bang, bang, made the deal. And then two months later, I get a phone call from the tenants telling me that the whole basement is flooded. I go over there and what do you see? You know, there's manure all over the place, like water, the sewerage had backed up. And the tenant's not very happy. And I'm not happy now because the tenant's not happy. Now I know that we got a problem. And I already had a feeling I knew what the problem was. So anyways, what I had to do, I had to take the tenant because it was bad. I had to take the tenant, put him in a hotel, and we had to go to work. and. What had happened was, because it was an older home, and also a little trick, a tip for everybody's listening, whenever you find a property that has these big humongous trees right next door, do your more due diligence on the weeping tile and the sanitary storm sewers, if the storm sewer exists on that property, because oftentimes, especially, especially on these older homes, you know, the 50, 70, kind of, you know, 80-year-old homes, Usually those weeping tiles in the storm sewers are made out of clay piping and roots are amazing how they're able to detect and figure out where water is. And they get in there and they start to grow and they create blockages and eventually the pipe collapses. And that's what happened in this particular home. So we had to chip out the whole basement floor. We had to go outside, excavate all the way to the property line, replace that whole pipe through the house because I could have put a sleeve, but the camera scope said it was just in multiple areas. It was just, it was bad. And so, you know, thousands of dollars later, uh, we got it all fixed up, brought this unhappy tenant back to their home, and I learned a valuable lesson. So as a tip, always be conscious of that. Trees around the property, no good. So if they're right up beside the house, you got to really look at the roof and you got to look at the weeping tile, you know, that kind of thing. As much as I love trees, they can cause a lot of problems. How would you have known that this was a pending issue before you bought the property? Well, you, one of my things that I checked, part of my checklist, I, I will spend money and bring a plumber out to scope it. So every property should have a clean out. You pop open a cap, a plumber will run his inspection, usually costs me around 150 bucks, and they'll run it all the way to the property line. Your responsibility as a property owner is to the property line. From the property line over to where the sanitary lines are on the street, usually, that's the city's problem. So if there's a blockage or an issue on the city side, you just call them up and they'll do what they got to do to fix it. But it's on the property line, that's your problem. And so I had an inkling. I saw the trees. But again, the deal was sweet. It was good. It was bam, 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 go, go, go. I was a little bit younger back then too, Sean. And you know, you're young and crazy. And then, like I said, like two or three months later, this catastrophe happened. So 
Yeah, that's what happened to me. So that's one of the things that I do. Like I don't rely on property inspectors anymore. Like I have a team. I have, I've got project managers. I have estimators. These are people that they know what they're looking for. And so I, like I said, mentioned before, I divested myself of the day-to-day operations of the business. So they go out and they look. I don't need property inspectors. I look at it. Unless we get into situations where I acquire multifamily buildings, then that's a different animal together because financing will require some type of a an engineer inspection. So that's different. So we're just concentrating on single family homes. So I do it myself. Makes sense. And you mentioned that you have properties in multiple states. And you also mentioned that you're no longer the one actually swinging the hammers. You outsource your, your work and you also encourage your students to do the same. How do you go about finding the right subcontractors to work on your projects? As I mentioned earlier, if you want to be a successful real estate investor, you need to hang around with the same kind of people and mindset. So birds of a feather flock together. So I always encourage the first place that you go in order to figure out to find your attrition, your plumber, your painter, whatever, is with your friends and family, your power team, you know, the mortgage brokers, your accountants, your real estate agents, you know, those types of people. And you reach out to them to give you an idea, you know, somebody has within your sphere done some type of work. And so you should be able to get contacts from them. The next step is, again, to go and, and be a part of those communities, like the REIs, the meetups, places like that. I've always found that people are very supportive in those groups. People want to help because those types of people are, that go there are got a mindset of abundance. They're happy. They're successful. They want to share. They want to uplift other people like I do. I want to truly, I feel good in helping people. So you go there and usually you should find somebody in your neck of the woods that says, yeah, you know, I'm successful. I'm doing my thing. Yeah, here's an electrician. Here's a painter. Here's a plumber. So that's how you create. I don't like going to Craigslist or in Canada. We call, we have this Kijiji. Or, no, no, no. That's the last place. If you know what you're doing, it's a great place to find the least expensive contractors. But it's not a place that I recommend new real estate investors who are embarking on their first couple of renos. I would much rather you stick with the tried and true. Once you've been able to find a contractor, the question you should be asking me, Sean, is how do I make sure that this guy or girl is a real deal? And so what I suggest is once you've been able to identify, gone through the tendering process, and you've gotten seven, eight quotes, and they're all based on, Sean, that scope of work that you've created, where you're comparing apples with apples, then you've identified the two or three contractors you want to talk with, you want to spend more time on. Then what does that mean? It means you actually got to hop in your vehicle and you got to go visit these particular, the references that they've given you. Ask for references and go see them. Go look at the work that they've done. Hopefully you'll be able to find a principal there who will be able to tell you. You'll ask questions like, hey, how'd you find this, this tradesperson, this painter, this electrician? Was he or she good? Did they do what they're supposed to? Were they All that kind of stuff. And get that information. And then once you've been able to get that information, you make a decision. And oftentimes what I encourage people is to trust your gut. Your gut is an amazing, it's amazing how if you feel comfortable, most often it leads you in the right direction and identifying the proper tradesperson, contractor work on your project. Yeah. You know, I've made many mistakes with my own flip projects where, you know, I've done some things that you said are big no-nos, like I have outsourced my contracting to a GC, right? And also outsourced that design work to him too. I said, hey, just do what you think makes it look beautiful. And of course, the work doesn't come out as you expect. But a big problem is sometimes these contractors have so many other clients that they take even longer on your project because they're doing like five deals at once. Like, is there a way to make sure they're only working on yours or what, what do you do to keep them in line and stuff like that? Well, Sean, the life of a contractor is pretty tough. It's not easy. And I'm speaking as one who got started in the business, had to scrape to provide uh, food on the table and eventually became more and more successful. But it's a tough life because we don't have a nine to five job. It's feast or famine, actually. Where in the summertime, it's all beautiful. You got you don't know what to do with all the work that you that you come across because everybody wants to get their work done spring, summer. But then all of a sudden, the autumn and, and winter time comes around. It doesn't matter where you are. It could be in Florida, California, or up in Canada. Things slow down. You know, the holidays roll in, the new year, people spend all their money on the credit, you know, the Christmas gifts and the G.I. Joe figures. And all of a sudden, they don't got the money to be able to spend on those rentals. So business slows down. So you got to take advantage of everything you can get. So 
contractors will grab as much as they can in the spring, summertime and load up as much business as they can. And they will play the dance. They're going to dance. They're going to go run to your place and do a little bit of work and then run over to the other guys, start theirs and then run over there and creep as many irons in the fire so that they can get collect the most amount of money. You as a real estate investor, of course, doesn't want that because you want to bang this sucker out as quickly as possible because time is money. You might have gone to a hard money lender to finance your purchase or the actual rehab. So you got to move. And so this is the issue that many people come across. And I also on occasion do as well. What I recommend always to folks is, again, back to that scope of work. But then once you have that scope of work, you identify the tradesperson, you got to have a really hard conversation with regards to what it is you want to see, the timeline, and what your expectations are, and put them in writing. Also, very, very important, never, ever give more money than you're supposed to. You only pay for what has been delivered. Oftentimes, and I am, listen, I'm a general contractor. If I did work for you, Sean, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to extract as much money as I can from you on the down payment. And then every little once in a while, deliver another invoice, pay me, pay me, pay me, pay me, because I always want to be ahead of the game. That's my deal. That's my angle. Your angle as a real estate investor is to try to not do that, to try to deliver the goods and you get paid. Because, hey, the only place that I know of that you have to pay before you get something is McDonald's. You know, your McDonald's, you got to go and you got to buy the hamburger and then the hamburger comes out. So why should contractors, and again, I'm one, why should contractors have to get money up front before they deliver anything? No, don't do that. So that's the biggest problem, Sean, because yeah, guess what? If I owe you money, you're going to show up. You're going to show up, buddy. You're going to show up when I tell you to because I owe you $8,000, $12,000, $16,000. And no contractor wants to walk away from that kind of money. No contractor wants to piss that guy off because, yeah, you can, as a contractor, go lean up property. All Nobody wants to do that. You don't want to do it, and he doesn't want or she doesn't want to do it. We got to be able to play nice. So part of that is having that difficult conversation and putting it writing in a scope of work contract that says, hey, this is what we're going to do. Shake on it. Sign on it. We agree. Everybody's happy. You put the minimal amount of down payment if required to reserve the contractor. And if you've established a relationship with a contractor, you should put no money down. And if there is money that you need to pay for with regards to materials that arrive on site, then you maybe should be the one that should handle that. So, for example, if I got a carpenter that I paid to, you know, put in some new floor joists and says, oh, I need, you know, $12,000 for material and for my, you know, reserving me or holding me down for this job, I'll be like, hey, okay, no problem. You order what you need to. I will pay for it. And the reason I also want to pay for it because the material arrives on my property, it's my material because I paid for it. Legally, when I pay for it, it's mine. It's not the contractor's. Because if you pay the contractor and the material doesn't show up, or if the material does show up legally, the contractor is going to say, hey, it's my money. I bought it. It just takes it away. So I like buying things for contractors. Now, if there's a account set up, you pay it. If there's some difficulties, you figure it out. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the least amount of money is I strongly encourage people, new real estate investors, don't give as that kind of money out. Keep as much money as you can, have them perform the service, and then you pay it. No, makes sense. Solid advice. Now, let's say you're trying to do your first project, right? You're going to be a GC on it. What tradespeople do you need and how many do you need of each? Well, like in terms of like how many I would tender out or ultimately how many would I just in total? Total that you would actually hire. Like let's say, you know, you talk to three electricians, but you probably only need one. Yeah. We're not going to be rehabbing Hugh Hefner's mansion. We're talking about typical average two to 3,000 square foot little single family home. So you're going to need an electrician, a plumber, painter, perhaps a carpenter, a handyman. You got to be careful with handyman because I often find a lot of people resort to the handyman because the handyman is cheaper. But I like to do things professionally and make sure that the job is done properly and legally. And a handyman shouldn't touch electricity. A handyman shouldn't touch plumbing because when they do, there's a whole liability issue. So I like hiring specific trades that are licensed for their particular thing. So painters don't need to be licensed, but electricians do, plumbers do. So it all depends on the actual work. Like every project is unique, but also the same. They're also the same, but they're unique. 
in that they have unique needs. So I don't know exactly how many trades your specific project would need, but typically we're talking about larger scale rehabs. So we're not talking about, you know, a little painting and, you know, out the door you go. We're talking about things where a kitchen's being removed, the bathrooms are being rehabbed, floors being either resurfaced or replaced, painting. You might have some roofing that needs to get done, landscaping for sure, maybe a deck, maybe you need to replace, you know, depending on the area. Like in Florida, I got some properties over there that I had to do through. There were some extensive termites that, you know, they need more extensive work that needed to be done. But it's all unique to the particular project and the trades that you need. But those are the kinds of things that I would suggest in particular about handyman, just to be careful and how you use them. You got to be strategic because handyman will be cheaper, but they do something that they're not supposed to legally, you're going to be liable. And also the reason why we want to specialize people on our work and not that, you know, the jack of all trades is we want professionals that come in, do their job and they're efficient. They're quick. They bang it out and they're out the door because what you realize as a real estate investor is that time is money. It is incredibly expensive if you're getting borrowing money and you're waiting for that property to flip or a property to rent it out, you know, time just sort of, you know, kind of creeps up on you. And all of a sudden you look back like, wow, you know, all this money went out the door because I wasn't able to finish my project quick enough. Yeah, absolutely. Sean, those are really the advantages. If you want to be a successful real estate investor, the real advantages are buying beat up properties that are distressed, that really a lot of people don't want to touch. And then you buy them at a great price. Hopefully you buy them off market, not on MLS. I don't buy anything now on MLS. I buy everything off market. Every day I get emails from bunches of people from my power teams, you know, from accountants and probate lawyers to bird dogs to wholesalers. And we go through those deals and we identify the ones that we like. If you are able to concentrate on an area, zero in on where you want to do business in, learn the area create the relationships within that area. It's amazing. It's amazing what you'll find. There's always somebody around that's got a problem with bills or has got a bunch of repairs that need to be done on a property and or they're embarrassed because their house is a disaster and they don't want to put it on MLS or bring a real estate agent and they're looking for a way out. And you're there to perform a service to help them out. You're going to buy the property. Obviously, you're going to have to buy it for a a price that makes sense not only for you, but also for the homeowner. But it's a win-win situation because you get them out out of their situation and you've gained this property. And those are where the opportunities are if you want to be successful, to be able to maximize the amount of money you make. you got to find those properties. And then once you do, you got to learn how to do that rehab rental stuff. Because it's a skill set that you need to be able to evaluate a property. And that's how you make money. Because at the end of the day, it's about making money. Absolutely. Uh, but going back to our question of how many people are on the job site, like who's in charge of, let's say, putting up new drywall or renovating the kitchen or even the bathroom? Are those just the handymen who do the general stuff? Well, with regards to a kitchen installation, depending on the kitchen supplier or manufacturer, oftentimes the kitchen manufacturer will be the one who will supply their own installers. So you negotiate that in the price. Before that, you hire individually the plumber, the electrician, whatever is required for that particular property to bring it to the point where you want it to be. Again, the scope of work is imperative to have that fully completed, to be able to provide everybody on that job site or in that project involved what the vision is, what it is that you want to ultimately create, the goal. And so everybody works off of that same goal. So communication is incredibly important here. You got to constantly communicate and make sure that people show up on time. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And you have you buy a big old blackboard or you know create a spreadsheet and I forgot what the hell it's called, but where each day goes by and you slot in all the trades and you make sure everybody's on the same page, that they understand that they got to show up on that particular day because you hold the other guy up. And it's amazing once you have the lines of communication established, it's all written on paper, everybody understands what's going on, that the project will go relatively smoothly. Will you have bumps along the road? Yes. No, they wouldn't be fun if there weren't any bumps along the road, right? Yeah, you might open up a wall and discover there's no insulation behind the wall. Then all of a sudden now you got to go through the cost and the labor and expense of, you know, putting insulation in. But that's part of the part and parcel of this racket. And then once you've gone through that process, 
you learn that, okay, that's something that I need to be aware of moving forward on the next project. So like from your experience, the person to do some a job like that, right? Drywall insulation, that would be a general handyman or is there like another trades person that does that? Again, Sean, it's all depends on the size of the job. Well, let's say a 1,500 square foot home, like a regular 1,500 square foot home. Like if it's a 1,500 square foot home and you're replacing all the drywall in that particular house, yeah, you got to hire a drywall company specific. Mm, got it. That does drywall taping. You don't hire a handyman because the job itself for them to do all the drywall, tape it, and do it in an efficient manner, the handyman's not capable. Again, guys who do drywall every day, watch them. They are amazing at what they do. They bang it out quickly. Hmm. A handyman who doesn't do this every single day, it's going to take them longer. And what we say earlier, time is money, man. Yeah. So I find that drywallers that are specific to you hire them would be more efficient and sometimes even cheaper, less expensive than a handyman because a handyman usually is working on an hourly basis. And I don't recommend, I recommend always getting things done on a lump sum, but that's how I would approach it. So in that 1500 square foot home, you hire specific trades for that particular task. Awesome. Well, Van, this has been an amazing conversation. You've definitely opened my eyes up for a lot of different things I didn't even know about for the whole renovation process. Because again, I'm in a very similar situation where I used to flip homes and I had uh, relied everything on my GC 100%. But unfortunately, I didn't learn so much from it. And I think there's just so much value in being your own GC and hiring out the different trades and of course working with people like yourself who can help guide and you know understand the entire process. So Van, how can people find out more about you? Well, I've got a website that I've created that has a bunch of information on there that helps new real estate investors in the process. So I've written a number of articles that uh, that are there. There is a free training video that's on my actual website that you can watch and it sort of gives you the framework of what it is that you need to do and reasons why things are done a certain way to be able to save 30 to 50% on your rehab project. So I encourage people to go on my website and get this all this information. Also, as a plus to all but everybody's listening, I encourage them to go on my website because I've got a I created this renovation calculator. It's something that you go on my website and you'll be able to download. And it's a really nifty tool. It took me a couple of months to put together and it really spans all of North America. It gives you a good idea, a sense of what the costs associated with doing a rehab project on your property. So you get this program, and all you do is just enter the square footage of the property and you enter what it is that you want to get done. And there's line items of so many things, lots of things that you can do to the property. And once you've been able to single these things out, it spits out a number. So it should give you sort of an idea of the cost associated with this potential rehab that you're considering doing on the property. So I encourage people to go to my website. And there's a bunch of podcasts I've been on, videos, stuff like that, of information that, that's there to be able to really immerse yourself in the steps and the process of what you should be doing on a successful rehab where you can save 30, 50%. So like it's money being left on the table and it's a skill set that everybody should learn. So I strongly encourage, never mind me, just strongly encourage people to get in it and learn the process. Absolutely. And what is your website? It's vansturgeon.com. So V-A-N-S-T-U-R-G-E-O-N.com. Awesome. Well, Van, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you having me. I love the conversation and I'm more happy to come back to speak to you more. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.